Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Mary's tapping her watch. Nobody, you don't want to cross Mary. That's not a good thing. I love you, Mary. Here we go. Full dance, close your eyes. Almighty and merciful God, for your mercy's sake, keep far from us any evil thing that opposes you, and unhindered in body and soul. May we serve you now with hearts set free, and someday in heaven, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, good to see you. Lots going on. Uh, apparently the donuts are a big hit. Um, I never, we, we've often talked about whether we should, in fact, when we talked about moving to the room next door so it would be bigger, uh, one of the things we thought about was having donuts every week. So I, what happened is we, the Vic called and cut our order for bagels in half. Clever salesmanship on behalf of whoever took the call. They did, in fact, cut the bagel order in half and then doubled the donut order. I'm like... I'm fabulous. I mean, they should be selling x-ray machines or something. Keep it, get the margin up. So um, anyway, I, I eat the donuts, take them home. So that's good. Uh, let's see here. Uh, everything toward Christmas sharing. Thanks for the food that's piling up. Uh, pay attention. In a week or two, Carol, who's right back there at the donuts, serendipitously, will need you to help do all the things, all the things, right? All the things that need to be done. Move things around and this and that. So in a couple of weeks, be ready to go. Yes, um, the grocery carts are the grand addition. Every, all, all the cool kids, I see them around the building pushing a grocery, grocery cart around. Dave uh, uh, Rickard got us 10 grocery carts because it'll make our, it, you know, it'll make the process so much better. So thanks to Dave Rickard for doing that. But Fifteen carts. That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful thing, Dave Rickard. You're a fine human being. No, I don't want any. I don't want any shenanigans. Okay, no, you know, I don't want any trouble from you kids. So that should that should be a lot of fun. That's good. Uh, what else? We'll put money for for hungry people. We'll, it'll go to the soup kitchen downtown, where uh, the Loses. Dad uh, was pastor and did such a nice job, so we'll send money toward them. Anything else we should think about? We forgetting anything? Everything else is good. All right. Uh, turn to John, uh, two, the second to chapter two, John chapter two. If you're not signed up to get a picture taken, get a picture taken. If you haven't bought a wreath, buy a wreath. Uh, right? Or what else? There's a free cookie involved, so I think you should probably do it. Okay, um, let's see here. Most of you know this story, but there's a lot behind the story. So just a little bit of story about what it was like to get married in the ancient Middle East. We, Kirby and I were struck on the East Coast, and so this is not so many years ago, but when we were at Princeton and Kirby was working with a lot of people from the East Coast, we were startled to find out that it, at... Um, at Ernst and Young, which is, you know, an enlightened sort of place. Um, and on the East Coast, and in a pretty small office, there were people who still were having their marriages arranged, both Jewish folks and Indian folks. So interesting for us, right? And sometimes uh, the results were wonderful, and sometimes uh, less than wonderful, right? So this is not such ancient history. It can, it can still happen. But if you, if you think about what it was like in, 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 uh, in Jesus' time, there were all sorts of things that you need to consider. 
Okay. Um, marriage arrangements were usually. I feel like I went off, Mary. Did I go off? Did my? Am I still? Can you still hear me? All right. Marriage arrangement, arrangements were made by the parents, and of course, there was no dating, and before marriage, there was no um, mixing of genders. You know, men and women wouldn't be alone in general, and an, an engaged couple would never really be alone. Uh, usually it was between people about the age of puberty who probably had never met, although in smaller places, you know, I think Cana had two or three, Nazareth had two or three hundred people. You know, it's possible, but the way that things work, you may have seen this person for the first time at your marriage. For a woman, uh, the giveaway date was 12 years and one day. And for men, if you weren't married by the age of 16 or 17, certainly by the age of 20, uh, there was something that was really quite odd. And so you think about Jesus not being married. Peter, of course, was married because we have a story about his mother-in-law. But then the other disciples, you can imagine how if they weren't married and they were older and they were itinerant, you can imagine how uh, how strange that might have been. There are some things that would probably upset our normal our sensibilities today, and maybe some things that wouldn't do that. Uh, it was, in fact, true among the Jews of Jesus' day that females had to give a consent or the union was invalid. You might have seen this article in the news this week where there was a Pakistani woman who was forced to marry, so she made uh, a cup of milk for her husband um, before he went to bed. He didn't drink it, but her mother-in-law found it and made yogurt with it, and it killed 17 people in the family because she was going to poison him and go home to the boy that she really loved, right? So, I mean, things can happen, right? So, uh, at least in this case, females had to consent or else this would be uh, invalid. Karen, already? What's up? You, uh, you said the giveaway date is 12 years and one day. Right. Is that the same as the marriage date? Uh, no, you could be you could be given away by the by your father at twelve years and one day. You know, uh, you're pressing me uh, more than I can say because this is oral tradition. So you can at least it'll give you a rough idea, but not before twelve years and one day. How's that? So here's what comes next, and see if I answer your question. Okay. Um, you would always work through a representative. We don't have this sense of community. We don't have such, although we do now, I was going to say, we don't have such a strong sense of shame and honor, although shame is now the primary cultural tool of our society, so maybe we're restoring this. But this tribal notion of community, of shame and honor, of reciprocation, those things aren't quite as strong in us. But if you think about it this way, the bridegroom's parents would, they would find a representative, a best man, uh, to negotiate with the bride's family. Usually they'd try to get the, a man of high stature, Right? You, would, you would find your greatest connection because everything is about shame and honor. If you have important people doing your work for you, it adds to your own importance. So this best man, uh, this person who would be the agent of the marriage, would have to see everything along until the marriage was consummated. This comes everything from uh, the initial engagement all the way through the time for waiting and then the wedding itself. And so we're going to read this story about where the wine runs out, and that's a great shame for a number of reasons. But that would have been a great embarrassment, not only to the groom, but also to this representative who sort of put everything together. 
they did drop a legal document, and there was a lot of payments that went back and forth. Um, there was uh, a dowry that was given, but also the future bride would also add to that, and actually later people would add um, also with their gifts so that people would have enough money both for the feast and then also to set up house. And you know that you may find this antiquated, but in some ways in a very poor society, where, and also in a society, you have to remember that in a society where things got leveled out every seven years and every 50 years, right? Where things were rented rather than owned. Um, this is another way of sort of keeping people from being too poor or being so bitterly poor that they actually couldn't make it and then become a burden back on their families or the community or, frankly, just starve to death. And we have some biblical stories of that, right? The, the widow who says, we've got nothing, let's have one less meal, and then we'll sit down to die. So you kind of keep all of that in your head. From the moment of the betrothal, um, they were spoken about as being married, although a couple of things would happen. This is why in the Christmas accounts you'll hear that even though um, they're, not, they're not yet married and uh, the marriage hasn't been consummated, um, the Blessed Virgin Mother is spoken of as, as Joseph's wife. Because what was terribly important... To, and this is true even today, if you have Jewish friends, what's terribly important to, is the bloodlines, right? So you preserve the bloodlines. This is why blood is everything. Blood is life in Leviticus. The bloodlines of the chosen people are everything. And so um, there were some practical consequences of this and also some religious ones. It's basically, you know, uh, you don't want to be tricked into a marriage where you support another person's child. So usually a woman would be sequestered for nine months or so and um, not left alone, but yet she would already be considered a man's wife. And there was all sorts of rules about fraud and about misrepresentation and unfaithfulness that could be invoked. But, um, you know, we're, we're a bit of a happier story, so we'll just kind of go with what the, the normal stuff would be. There'd be a price for the bride um, between 200 and 400 denarii, so... You know, that's a day's work. So you're talking about a year's pay um, that would be, would be paid out. And there was a, a, what's interesting, though, is that the law protected a woman in all of this. Um, it was written down, and uh, in the marriage contract, even though the dowry was given, in a sense it belonged to the wife, and the husband-to-be husband had to add 50% of the amount. Now, don't hold me to this too closely. It's hard to kind of dig this stuff out and figure out what's going on. But if you have all this background, you can, you can get a greater sense of shame than, hey, we just ran out of the Mandavi, right? This is your whole life coming together. This is really, all, these are how families are put together. These are how communities are maintained. You know, we've seen this. This is why, you know, um, you know Germans are suddenly married into the, into the uh, um, you know, into the royal house in England, right? You see this all the time. The back. This is how things are arranged, and treaties are made, and peace is maintained, and communities are built. Um, there's much more to marriage than just love. The feast itself. Um, I often think to myself. Well, so when I was in my first parish, everything lasted two or three or four hours, right? And in my own mind, I always sort of analyze this as. This is a throwback to when people would literally ride a horse or bring a buggy to town and stay. It took a long time to get to church. So church would go two or three hours, and everybody would stay all day long. 
you still have this if you go to Africa and do mission work. People kind of show up and they gather and there's not a set time. It's like people kind of get there and then everybody stays. Why? Because it, when, it, when you have to travel long distances, you stick together. Well, a marriage then could last up to a week. And um, the actual wedding, kind of the stuff could last, you know, three days or so. But once you had people in place, you had to entertain and provide for all these guests. So, you know, what would happen is the guests would be gathered, you ring a bell, or there'd be this kind of shout. And there was the responsibility of folks to bring um, the bridegroom's friends would go get the bride. Now, you, you've heard this in the story of the Foolish Virgins, right? People don't have enough oil. They go out to town. They sort of miss the entry, and everything starts without them, and the doors close. That's kind of the harsh part of the story. But there are really interesting things, at least at this time, where one of the interesting things is you know, they would, they would put a veil over the bride and the groom as they brought them forward. They'd lead them with palm branches. So now you've got to, you think about Palm Sunday. What does this exactly mean? Well, part of it means honor, part of it means joy, part of it means celebration, part of it means holiness. It means something really important is going on. So on Palm Sunday, when they cut down palm branches, they're basically saying to Jesus, this is fabulous. And of course, in the back of your mind, you should have the fact that one of the images for the Messianic kingdom, when the Messiah comes, it'll be like a feast, like a wedding feast. So if you read Revelation, uh, it was the text from today, who are these people? These are they who have come out of the great tribulation who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, right? So what's happening? You have this huge party in heaven going on sort of nonstop, gathered around the Lamb on his throne, gathered around the altar, gathered around the Eucharist. But you have kind of imitations of that already here on earth when you had a wedding. So you gather all the guests, and there'd be basically two groups of guests. You'd have these, this inner group of cousins and family, and they would sort of make sure that things worked out. There's a little speculation, there's a tradition in the church that perhaps uh, the Blessed Virgin Mother, St. Mary, was a cousin or an aunt, right? So how does she know that they're running out of wine before everybody else does? Well, one is that the inner family would gather, stay in the house, or if there was a house, or they would stay near so that they, they could help with things. So they'd have kind of a pulse on. It's, not, it's like you working with the caterer, or, you know, do you have enough candles for the birthday cake? That's you. I mean, you're kind of figuring that you're a mom, or you're, you know, you're a grandmother, and you're paying attention to see if things work. So you have this, this inner group of cousins and relatives and family, but then you have... Um, Another group of people, they break down in two ways. One is they're people invited by courtesy or from poverty. So you might wonder, often in the story of Jesus, where do all these people come from, right? You know, suddenly there's, this, there's a prostitute that shows up, or there's a, there's a man who's sick, or, or somebody who wants to anoint his... How do these people get in? Well, the tradition at a, at a wedding feast was you'd sort of have your feast, and then at some point... You would sort of pull up the side of the tent if you were fortunate enough to have a tent, if you were rich enough. Or you would sort of throw open the doors and you would uh, feed the poor, basically. You would share in your good fortune. Now, there are a couple of things. About five or six years ago, I heard that there was a Jewish organization that was trying to do this where they were trying to get brides and grooms to donate a tenth of what they spent on their wedding to charity, kind of to honor this old custom. Here... If you've gotten married here, there's, you know, uh, zillions of costs external. We try to make it really cheap here. But one thing we do say is if you have, uh, if you have the means, you know, as long as you're spending 
you know, twenty or fifty thousand dollars on a wedding, um, we'd say, can you throw three or three or four hundred bucks in the widows and orphans fund? And basically, what we do is spend that on other people. We've done everything from buy books and computers for kids going to college to send kids on mission trips. So, so there's just this little bit of money that kind of honors this old thing of we're generous to other people when everything has gone well for us. So you have these two kinds of people. You have the very poor who really can't contribute but benefit. You also have the very rich. And what's interesting about the very rich is they come, it's almost having, you know how this last week, you know, there were a couple of celebrities who crashed weddings. Did you, did you see the you got to watch more YouTube, okay? you got to keep up and get your finger on the pulse of America, what really matters. But uh, can somebody remember there were two times this week where people, Pink crashed last week and sang at somebody's wedding and danced, and then somebody this week too, right? Maybe Luke Bryan went to a wedding, just shows up and starts playing. I mean, this is a good deal, right? So you, what happens is you'd, you'd hope for uh, people with prestige or a lot of money to show up. You actually wouldn't charge those people either. It was more like... They would, they would give a little something as a token because it was shameful for a rich man to be indebted to a poor man, right? So you'd sort of give enough to make things right. But it's almost like rich people got an appearance fee. You know, Tiger Woods could play golf, but he got... Or I read about, I read about somebody playing blackjack in Vegas the other day where he got, he, he got like $50,000 an hour to sit at the blackjack table. Why? Because everybody else wants to sit around and play. Well, it's like, gee, yeah, the thing is, you came up with right so fast that you should probably check your bank account on the way home, okay? <laughs> no, you know, I, see, I had, I had, I, I know, I know, you read things, you know things. I know, I, I, never, I never knew this. I know you get paid to play cards. I mean, this is a pretty good deal, right? It increases the odds in your favor, right? So, um, you know, so, so, you have, so you have your family, and then you sort of have these people who... Uh, you know, if you will, get an appearance fee. What you don't want to do is humiliate any of them, right? Um, beyond that, you know, you probably have about everything you need to know. Cain is a little bit north of Nazareth. You're creeping into Gentile territory here. But um, we'll kind of start with, you know, with the text now. The mother of Jesus is there. So grab your text. We'll just kind of read through this. Uh, pause. What, know in the background you know. You kind of think to yourself and you say... You know, the whole point of this is I'm trying to get you to be, you know, a bit more non-reactive toward the world. I mean, though every, every morning it's somebody shaming some, somebody else about something else. And I, and I think to myself, I, I actually have come to treasure, you know, the Eighth Commandment in the Cat Luther's Catechism where he says, we'll put the best construction on everything, right? So when you hear data about somebody, you try to say, I wonder if there's any way that this could be explained in a favorable way. Um, it's really interesting because everything is explained, it seems to me, in the most unfavorable way to score points. I mean, it's, I mean, gloves are off and everybody's going hard at everybody else. So you take a morning like this morning, right? So we take up the challenge of death. There's a dozen people who have lost everything from children all the way to elderly parents and everything in between. And you come here and what happens is, is that you can put people in a place where they're safe and they can heal. What you want to do is try to be able to maintain that atmosphere against the world. It doesn't really matter what people say about you. It doesn't really matter what people think about you. As long as you have clean hands, you know, as long as you live in forgiveness, as long as you live in virtue. And what will happen is, is that will be naturally attractive to people. It really does boil down that people are alone and unloved and they need to be cared for. And 
on a day like today, I mean, that's special, especially true. So the whole point of this is how to react to situations and to people in a way that is charitable, is open, is winsome, is merciful. And so we started with, you know, Jesus kind of with kind of smart aleck, you know, seminary students. That's kind of where we were last week. But now again, if you're a pastor, you always remember, and I always say this to you, if you get married here, we have a funeral here, if I sense that there, you know, might be, I mean, Pat, one of the pastors had a, had a thing where the police came the other day, and I'm like, I told you, I've had the fist fight at the funeral. I've told you the story, right? Did you tell the story to the girls at the afternoon no. circle? No. Oh, yeah, I just, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I have time to tell you, but I just, I just, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so I started by saying, um, the doctor said she died of kidney failure. That's how doctors talk. I said, Jesus says she died of sin. That's how Jesus talks. This kid gets up and leaves from the front row, locks himself in the bathroom. I'm already at the nurse. You know, I've already conceded because I'm at the funeral home. So I've already made, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, the rest of this is probably not going to go that well, right? <laughs> So um, basically what happened is the kid wouldn't come out. Everybody's lined up. They're, we're trying to go to the funeral, and this kid won't come out of the bathroom because I said that his grandmother was a sinner. I, mean, I didn't think I was that far out of bounds. And, um, you know, what happened? The dad is pounding on the door, and I said, can I help you? He goes, and he said to me, haven't you done enough? <laughs> So, you know, the last thing I saw was the dad and the kid kind of going at each other as they're climbing into the funeral limousine to go to. Then you're thinking to yourself, this should be good when we get to the graveyard, you know. Yeah, this stuff can happen. Anyway, everybody remembers always what happens at a, at a marriage and a funeral, right? Somebody drinks a little too much and decides they're going to make a toast. Yeah, that's good. Or, you know, somebody says, you never or you always, and then you're off to the races at a, at a funeral. It's, um, so anyway, these are tender spots even for us still, right? All right, so what, what you want to see is how Jesus negotiates basically a situation of shame and honor. So on the third day, and you know the third day is a big deal. Third day is resurrection day. Third day and eighth day are big days in John's gospel. Third day and eighth day are days of the resurrection. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Easter Sunday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, or one whole week, right? On the third day, there was the marriage of Cana in Galilee, this hometown folk. This is like going to Victor, Iowa, where all my relatives are from. It's like that. That's what it's like. I'm just, I'm just telling you it is. And so um, there's marriage in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Interesting phrase, you know, the mother of Jesus was there. You can take it as a respectful phrase. Jesus was also invited to the marriage with his disciples. So probably family. He's not famous yet. They probably know somebody or it's a small village or this is hometown stuff. You've been to the Holy Land, you know, Cana, Nazareth, and Bethsaida. You know, those, those places are, they're walking distance, right? Everybody kind of knows each other because they were agrarian and they moved around a little bit. So when the wine gave out, what you should see is Danger Will Robinson. Boop, boop, boop. The wine gave out, right? So like you're, we're, out of, we're out of wine. When the wine gave out, um, the mother of Jesus came to him and said, hey, they don't have any wine. Now, we're not exactly clear how she knew, and we don't exactly know what she wanted. 
Jesus hasn't done any miracles yet. You know, she's, she's been talking to angels for lo these many years, right? So she has some inkling that Jesus is not a normal kid in the neighborhood. But he hasn't sort of manifested anything miraculous yet, although, and he grew in wisdom and stature, so she's been mother to him, but she's seen things like when he got lost in the temple. So, you know, one can only speculate what exactly this means. They don't have any wine. And Jesus says to her, hey, oh woman, what do you have to do with me? Now, every young boy has used this text as a reason to sass his mother. Because it sounds like, you know, you could, uh, it sounds like Jesus is kind of being lippy with the Blessed Virgin Mother, right? But in fact, this is a common phrase. It's a Jewish phrase. It's an idiom. And it's meant to um, put a little distance in between. Uh, it, it sounds a little more like, I can't believe you're asking me that. Or, I'll take care of this. Or, um, really, this isn't your deal. Or, I'm a big boy and I know, you know, it has that kind of that sense. In the Old Testament, there's a couple of places you can go see uh, if you want. Um, I gave you, I gave you um, one or two. I'm clear down to number nine for you who are counting the clock against me. Um, you know, it means something like, you're not, you don't quite see what clear, what, you know, you're not seeing this clearly. It's, it's not really... Your business, even you're a bit out of line, which I put there, that might be a little bit too strong. Although there is one of the examples I give you is when there's King Ahab, there's no rain for three years. He comes to the prophet Elijah and he says, why don't you make it rain? And Elijah uses these same words to respond to him. You know, what's this between you and me? You're basically saying, it's not between you and me, it's between God and me. So whatever God wants me to do, that's what I'll sort out. That's what it means. So it's not sassy. It just is, um, I'm about my father's business, you're my mother, I'm the Messiah, things haven't started up yet, let's see what happens. But then, as I often tell you, and my hour has not yet come. And hour is this huge, it's this huge word in John's gospel. My hour has not yet come. It's basically, Jesus finds his greatest hour, talks most honestly and directly about his hour. When my hour comes, I'll be crucified. I'll be lifted up on the cross. I'll find my glory and all the world will see me, right? So our with a capital H is really about Jesus coming to the cross. But it can be used, John used it over and over again for these significant points of reference. So it's just not time yet, right? But then in the very next verses, you know, if you could remember one piece of scripture, if you did, if you memorized one verse, if you were getting married and wanted to make your marriage work, or if you were a pastor and wanted your church to work, or if you were selling greens downstairs and you wanted there to be a big showing of greens bought, how am I doing? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Right. And poinsettias. You should never forget poinsettias. In fact, this Greek word actually means poinsettia. The, you, I, you know, I didn't translate it because I was busy this week. But anyway, um, you know, my hour's not yet come. I mean, the next verse. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, that is uh, one of the most, it's one of the best lines in Scripture. Right? Just That will get you um, through just about everything. Even a day like today, you know, we've had a range of responses from people who are, and usually it's by how close you are to the death of folks, but I mean, there's 
a range of you know, deep hurt and anguish and sometimes even anger, completely understandable. And the far range of people who are kind of gently remember uh, most of the pain has been wrung out of the experience and they sort of gently remember the gift that other people were and they try, they don't remember people's, the things they did to them that were so horrible, they kind of remember, they've, they've, they've lost memory for the ills and they've rejoiced in the good things. It's, it's really nice. This is what will get you there. Like just do whatever he tells you. Live by virtue, right? Just listen to Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. You may not always understand it. You can't see it clearly enough to decide. You should just do whatever Jesus tells you. It's the kindest. Um, here's the thing. You're betting on something. And this is actually true for other people who don't believe. I mean, everybody's betting on something, right? And, you know, the popular... Um, Well, I, where I did this wedding in, um, I don't know if you can remember. Can you remember? This is going to, this is going to, remember, we were at the wedding. I know you do. <laughs> Listen, that is not the first time you said that to me. <laughs> I'm with you, you and me. <laughs> yeah, right. I need more info. We were at this wedding, and I said, take a snap a picture of that on my phone. There was a store next to the church where we did this wedding a few weeks ago in Michigan that said, can you remember? What that little sign said outside that store? You can't remember? Oh, yeah. It was all about... The- yeah, but I can't remember. It was... Uh, I can't even... It's, I'll, I'll ruin it. You don't have it. I have it on my phone. It was my phone. Oh. Yeah, sorry. It was all the Yeah, it was all the bad words. We, it was good phrase. Yeah, but it was... Yeah, anyway. Well, it was fun, and we'll tell you about it another day. In any case, um, everybody, the point of this is everybody believes somebody, right? So a couple of weeks ago, we, just, we were talking a little bit about... How, you know, every, so science is real was one of the buzzwords on this sign, right? Which was, you know, clearly a diss at Christians in the church right next door about we're real and you're not. Uh, it was basically said, don't come into shop with us unless you believe. And then it had this long list of things, right? Um, but, of course, you know, scientists, they have this thing about the s- symmetry of the universe or the asymmetry of the universe where they're just like, we just can't, we know this has how it has to be. But we just can't figure it out yet. Now, in one sense, that's a very valuable exercise because, you know, in another sense, um, people find what they're looking for, right? But the, the point of this is everybody believes something. Um, everybody has a master, even if you're your own master. Everybody has a master. The great thing about the great, here's the great thing about if you're your own master, the great rebuttal to you if you're your own master is that you die, right? Yeah. If you're your own master and you die, you're not a very good master, right? And it just is. It's the great, we have to wait often, but eventually we stand over you and say, just do whatever he tells you. And as I grow older, you know, you start, and I think maybe you can only do this as, as you try a lot of different things and try to figure things out. At some point, you just have to throw your lot in somewhere. And if you don't, you never make any progress. But I think part of what we're trying to say in the church is, if you're going to throw your lot in someplace, this is a pretty good way to... Um, you know, and I have to say, I, I'm not big for schadenfreude, but um, I will have to say, yeah, see, can I say this without sinning? Let me say this objectively as I can. The 20 years ago when Hollywood had a good go at the church because of all those people were sexual predators, maybe there's just all those people, and some of them are predatory and some are not. Maybe we should think about, see, this is the thing about tribe over virtue. Our tribe is pure until they're not. 
maybe really the world is just composed of sin and holiness. Maybe the world looks much more like that. And in every tribe, there are people who are sinners. and In every tribe, there are people who are forgiven. Maybe the world looks more like that. So maybe we should be respectful across tribes as opposed to only my tribe is right. I read a very interesting thing about one of our Lutheran pastors who was on a flight with a Muslim long flight in Russia. I mean, flights in Russia are long, right? A long flight in Russia with a, a very he he a very honorable Muslim man. Um, I don't know if any of you get the get the stuff from the Lutheran Church in Siberia, but one of the pastors wrote this thing. He said it was a very it was a very interesting conversation. But he said he said the one thing I could never get him to do was to condemn terrorists who are Muslim. And so he said, and being in the Russians, this is a very sore point because you remember this from a couple of years ago when these terrorists went into a school. Do you remember this? And they killed all these school kids, right? before they themselves were killed. So he actually brought that point up. He said, what about people who kill children? I mean, it was like 252 or something, right? It was a big number. What about people who kill hundreds of children? And he said, the interesting thing was, I couldn't get him to say that those people would be outside his tribe. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying this about all Muslims. I'm not saying it about all people. You could say the same things about Christians, too. Christians sometimes will not say, those people are not our people. Right? Virtue over tribe. That's the point. And this is what you have to sort of say. Jesus is a safe spot when you say, do whatever he tells you. Right? Do whatever he tells you. You have firm ground that will take you into virtue and out of tribe. It's just the, it may be the lesson. So his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So there were, sorry. Are those her last words in scripture? They are, you are just showing off today. <laughs> it actually are. I should have said that, right? It's actually a very kind thing. You know, that's the last time, thanks to Kirby, reminded me. That's the other thing. This is the last time Mary speaks in scripture. Isn't that cool? Those are very last words. You're going to see her again. You see her a time or two when they say, your son's a crazy man, come and pick him up. Or you see her at the foot of the cross, but you know, this is the last time she speaks. Thank you very much. That's even a more fun point than the other. The very last thing Mary says to the church, right? The very last thing Mary says to you, the very last words of Mary in scripture are, do whatever he tells you. It's just fabulous. Like you can't make that up. It's so good. And you're faced with that. And other people are faced with that choice too. And the thing is, you don't have to work by force. This is just like, do whatever he tells you. And if I do what he tells me, what will happen? Well, what will happen is your restless heart will be stilled. You'll li- learn to live in mercy. You won't be predatory, but you'll be loving. You'll provide for the poor. You'll be winsome. You'll be kind. All the things that Christians are meant to be, all the things that Christ was, do whatever he tells you. It's a fabulous thing. And it, it, you, thank you very much. I, I hadn't brought that to mind. It's her very last words in Scripture. So nice, right? There were six stone jars standing there for the Jewish rites of purification. Their stone jars is interesting. They're expensive, and they're reusable, and they can be cleansed, unlike clay jars that didn't sort of fit the rites of purification. So this is an expensive proposition. They're each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's a lot, right? Now, fill them up. It seems like they're empty. So there's a question about whether... Are they empty because everybody washed as they came in, so you have a very pious crowd? 
Or are they empty because whoever the host is didn't really pay attention and didn't fill the jars and so nobody could wash? It's hard to kind of figure it out. A lot of times you don't get the answers to the story. But it's an interesting... the, The story works either way. If it's blessing upon blessing for the very pious, it's great. If it's complete redemption for the unpious, it's great. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Either way it works. But it is interesting that the jars seem to be empty. So these were there for the rites of purification. They each hold 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said, right? And now Jesus finally says, fill them up. Fill them up to the brim. And they filled them up to the brim. Do whatever he tells you. I mean, here's the lesson. Do whatever he tells you. You do whatever he tells you. This is what happens to your life. Fill them up. And they filled them up to the brim, right? So all these got and more. Filled them up. He filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, take some out and take it to the steward of the feast. This would have been pretty high up the chain of command, maybe the agent who negotiated it. But in any case, this is the guy who's going to lose face if he doesn't get this problem solved. Take it to the steward of the feast. It's somebody who would have known, right, the trouble. It's somebody who would have been personally shamed, who would have brought shame on the entire wedding on the bride, on the groom, on the families. And in little towns, I don't know if you ever noticed, people talk, right? So everybody would have known. There's no escape. So one of, the, one of the joys of a little town is everybody knows. And one of the problems of a little town is everybody knows, right? It's, it's, a, it's a tough deal. So um, I can remember we were in our first, gosh, you've got to help me. I, I forget all these stories. This is right after we moved in, right? Um, this is like, probably not a month after we went to our first parish, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody came up to Kirby and said, are you okay? Are you feeling okay? And she said, yeah, why do you ask? And she said... They said, well, your bathroom light was on around 4.30. <laughs> A.M. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Little towns, all right. And there's... They're looking out for you. Maybe they're looking out for you. At least they're looking. So, uh, yeah, I, well, you know, it is what it is. He said to them, hey, take some out. Take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. So twice they've done what he said. They filled it up. They, t- they took it to the steward. And when the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, now, now, here's a little thing. Though the servants who had drawn knew the water, so what happens when you do what Jesus tells you? You learn things, right? You get illuminated. You have knowledge, right? In the doing is the learning. In the West, we're so convinced that we memorize things. We learn. We watch videos. We, we data dump. We, we read books, right? We memorize things. Sometimes in the doing is the learning, Right? You know, love is like this, right? In the loving, you learn about being in love, right? This is, is just, this happens everything. So this, this, the servants knew. The servants were enlightened. They knew what happened, right? When the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Didn't know where it came from, though the servants knew. The steward of the feast called the bridegroom, right? And this is your great, like, it's all going to be okay moment because Jesus is here. Which, of course, is a moment for you, too. Um, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everybody serves the good wine first. Right? You set the tone with the good wine. Uh, maybe you know, public drunkenness would have been a bad deal, but, you know, usquad hilaritatum, Aquinas, you can drink to the point of hilarity, right? 
have a good drink and have a good laugh, right? How much can you drink? I mean, for me, it's basically if Jesus showed up right behind me for the second coming and I turned around and said, Jesus, good to see you. That's the limit, okay? <laughs> so if Jesus shows up and you don't recognize him, you've had one too many, okay? So, you know, so, you know everybody is, uh, hey, everybody brings the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, everybody feels good. Everybody's willing to give the benefit of the doubt. We're the third day in. What did you expect? There's only so much money. There's so many people here. When everybody's drunk freely, then the poor wine. But then this, this code, right? But you saved the good wine for last. You know, it's not about the wine. You know, it's about Jesus. It's about the word. You've saved the good wine for last. You've saved the good fulfillment of the messianic prophecies for last. You've saved the good news for last. You've saved the good teaching for last. What you're supposed to see is the wine points to Jesus. That's a pointer. It points to Jesus and says, you should pay attention now. This is the one you should obey. Things are getting better. I mean, I, one of the things is so interesting. I, you know, and you have to have a you have to have, have a calm heart to say this. But occasionally, uh, you just say to somebody, you know, why are you so angry? I right, put aside the things that people are ostensibly angry about in the world, because we live in a world where people go from angry thing to angry thing. It's almost like they look for something to be mad about, right? Because anger is the emotion that drives people to action and you sort of consolidate the action and you get what you want. It is really interesting to watch both political parties in America disintegrating before our eyes, right? It is amazing to watch it on both sides. You just just see, it's you, no, it's you, no, it's you, no, you cheated, no, you cheated, no, this, no, here's the proof. It's amazing to watch it. I mean, you say... You know, what kind, of a, what kind of a world we live in? It's amazing, right? Well, for you, right? Well, one of the things, one of the things that if, to be helpful, not to be like, don't say it after, you know, two shots and a beer to somebody who's bigger than you in a bar. What are you so angry about? What you want to say is, I mean, to help somebody, the, to really, it's an honest question. And you should ask your own heart first. You know, really, what is it that you're so angry about? What has you so unsettled? Right? Kilo, right? Jesus will take care of it. So there was all of this fuss, and now there's not, because Jesus is the good wine that's for last. So when the steward didn't know where it came from, and then he says, everybody serves the good wine, and you held it for last. And then uh, the famous thing, this is the first of the signs that Jesus did. You remember we did this the first couple of weeks, signs are pointers. So water to wine is a cool thing. And it's fun when it happens. If you've ever known anybody who had a spontaneous healing, if you've ever seen um, people just come back from the brink, if you've ever seen somebody who their life was out of control and it flipped, right? There's just this feeling of like it points, it points to everything good. Well, you know, this is a pointer. Jesus is pointing. The wine is pointing. Jesus is pointing to the kingdom of God. He's pointing to the forgiveness of sins. He's pointing to calm hearts. He's pointing toward a great party. He's pointing toward provision. He's pointing to his heavenly father. He's pointing to the cross. Ultimately, he's pointing to himself. So um, everything is sort of, this is the first one of his signs. Jesus did it in Cana and Galilee. You can put a pinprick, you know, in the map and you can go there. He's trying to say this is historical. And he manifested his glory, which is a little bit of heaven came to earth. 
And look, and his disciples believed in him, right? And I just, just a little bit about belief. You know, we're so, especially kind of in our area and um, in America, belief is so much about you stack up the proof and you believe. Here's the thing. No, it's like this. This was water, and now it's wine, and you can't unsee it and you can't untaste it. And you can either say that didn't really happen, or you can do whatever he says. Those are your choices. Try not to intellectualize this to the point, thank you. Try not to intellectualize this to the point where it's sort of an A to B, B to C, data dump proposition. No, no, this is like when Jesus raises somebody from the dead. So she's dead, now she's alive, you've seen it, you can't unsee it, you can't unhear it, you can't unexperience it. Your choice is to say, that Bev Hecht is really something, which I know you say all the time. <laughs> or you can just say, nothing happened, right? The Bears are playing today. <laughs> just kidding. I love you. All right, so um, all right, you got it? So everything else here, the, the you know, obedience, uh, all of this, I think, it's, I think I'm all the way to the end. So, um, and this is the beginning of the signs. Here we go. All right? Um, it's a nice day, All Saints Day. I tell you what, buy some greens, um, bring some food. Carol, you still want food? Oh, yes. All right, food. And then what else is the special thing for this week? Uh, is it still food this week? This is the food week? It's, it's food until the end of November. Clothes? Clothes. Clothes and food. Socks and shoes and coats. And toys and socks. And gloves. And hats. Okay. <laughs> that stuff. Bring that stuff. Go buy a lot of that stuff and bring it to Carol. I think you can just, I, I think it, the, the dump at the front door works out okay, doesn't it? People just drop it. We'll, we got people to take care of it, right? It, Dave Rickard will come with 15 carts. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. See you.